sometimes the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And welcome to the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 142. Before I get to this week's guest, just a little housekeeping item about one of my former guests. When I was in the planning stages of launching the Back of the Range back in the summer of 2017, I was putting together a list of guests that I wanted for the first 50 episodes. At that time, I knew many of the great amateurs in the state of Florida, knew a couple college coaches, but that was about it. I would jot down names on scratch pieces of paper before, you know, upgrading to a spreadsheet. Yeah, it's a whole process over here. Anyway, one name that has always been on the list is Rick Wolf. Rick Wolf has been a household name in Florida amateur golf over the past 30 years. He has accumulated 15 state championship victories in his career and is a 12-time Florida State Golf Association Player of the Year and he's just been named to their 2020 Hall of Fame class. Now, I'm going to put a link to his accomplishments in the show notes of this episode for two reasons. One, there's a lot of them, and it would take too long for me to mention all of them in the introduction to this episode. And two, it's probably going to embarrass Uncle Rick to know that I'm promoting his accomplishments on this episode. So, win-win for me, and win-win for you. Rick was my guest on episode 70 and he shared several great stories about his amateur career, and it's definitely worth a listen. The link to that episode is in the show notes as well. So congrats to Rick, along with Karen Korf and Doug LaCrosse, who are in the new Hall of Fame class as well. Before we get to this week's episode, we are on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Every episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. The new towels are in stock. There is a link on the website. If you'd like to purchase them, two for 25 bucks. Keep one for yourself. Give one to someone else. During last week's episode, I spoke with Alex Fitzpatrick. He just wrapped up his sophomore season at Wake Forest. He played on the 2019 GB&I Walker Cup team. What does that have to do with my guest this week? Well, my guest this week is on the bag for Alex's older brother, Matthew Fitzpatrick. My guest on this episode is Billy Foster. He is, without a doubt, one of the great caddy characters in the game's history. He has toted the bag for Ryder Cuppers like Lee Westwood, Darren Clark, and Sergio Garcia. He's caddied for the legendary Seve Ballesteros. He caddied for Tiger in the President's Cup, who he calls, with apologies to Mr. Nicholas, the greatest player of all time. We spoke about his experience working the Ryder Cup, learning the intricacies of Augusta from Seve. That had to be incredible. And he even provided some behind-the-scenes stories about some of the players he has worked for in his career. We probably could have gone for hours and hours if we were in person and had a few pints between us, but as you know, we couldn't make that happen since Billy is across the pond. Hopefully, I'll get to catch up with him in person soon. Special thanks to my good friend Daniel McCoy for making this episode a reality. If you like the footage and photography that I was able to produce during last year's Walker Cup, yeah, that was pretty much due to Daniel's hard work. So thanks again to him for being such a great supporter and a great friend of the back of the range. 
Let's get to this episode right away. Let's not waste any time. One of the true legendary veteran caddies of the world of professional golf, Billy Foster. Welcome to the back of the range. How are you, sir? Well, thank you very much. I've just put my wheelchair away after that introduction. Wheelchair, well, veteran, I mean, veteran, veteran. You, you've, you've <laughs> crawled, you've crawled over to the phone to, to tell, <laughs> tell some what, stories. I'll tell you what, you're not far off either. I'll tell you. I'm telling listeners what you know what date we're recording these episodes because of the coronavirus, just to make sure everyone knows you know when we're actually speaking. So uh, April sixteenth, we're actually talking, and you just got done with really an absolutely incredible fundraising effort on your your end. You um, basically auctioned off some items of your memorabilia collection from your uh, your your career as a caddy, you know, caddying for the best players in the world, whether it's Tiger, Seve, Darren Clark, Westwood. Uh, you've been at it for for quite some time. So tell me, how'd you get the idea of doing this um, this auction, and and what are some of the items that uh, that you let go? I got the idea. You know, obviously the, the the stuff that's really precious to me is you know that's still in my house, but you accumulate so much memorabilia over the years that you know it, it's nice, but is it going to be the end of the world if I let it go? No. So I figured, you know, the the NHS, the hospital nurses, they're really struggling, you know, to get hold of uh, equipment and stuff. I just thought it'd be a good idea to, you know, I'm new to social media. I said I'd never do it. And I just figured <laughs> I'd put a couple of things out on Instagram, you know, selling or auctioning certain memorabilia, you know, uh, like, you know, Tiger's bib that I wore at the President's Cup. Right. Framed up with a photograph, etc. A couple of Sevy things, um, radical bibs, etc. Um, there's a, a special football that's 50 years old, signed by uh, my my team, Leeds United, which was uh, you know a really good team back then, and you know that raised a few thousand pounds. There was a, a Scotty Cameron limited edition putter that went for three and a half thousand pounds. So you know it made some good money. I made like forty five thousand dollars, which uh, in six days, so that was pretty good. I was happy with that, and uh, I posted the money off this morning. So that's uh, that's get fantastic. it out, get it out there quickly. That's, yeah, uh, that's, so I'm, that's I'm happy really with great. That. What uh, not not to find out what you got stowed away in your house, but what is one of those special items that will never get let go in an auction? What is one of the items that's really close? Uh, to well, I've I've got one of Savvy's golf bags that's signed by him with a few of his. His clubs that he used to use, yeah. um, you know, I've got, I have got, I've still got, because obviously in the President's Cup, you you do get a couple of bibs, so I've got Tiger's President Cup's, uh, Cup uh, bib, yeah. or vest as you call it, uh, framed up with some nice pictures and, and memorabilia in it, uh, you know, and, um, you know, I've got a really nice Augusta National, lovely picture of the 12th green, and it's signed by the likes of Sam Snead, uh, Seve Ballesteros, Tiger Woods, Byron Nelson, Arnold Palmer, Gary Player, Gene Sarazen, Tom Watson, Ben wow. Hogan, Nick Faldo, Wuzzy, Elizabeth, Jack Nicholas. Uh, so there's some nice stuff, you know. That's a great one. That's, that's special to me, yeah. That's a great one. I appreciate you you hopping on and just telling a couple of stories. I know you're one of the one of the greatest storytellers, uh, whether it's <laughs> whether it's the Tiger story of him getting uh kind of uh you know stuck uh 
Well, it, stuck in the middle of a Tom Kite situation, but uh, what, so um, I've never heard that story. Oh yeah, well that, that's <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you if you want me to tell it to you, you're on the wrong side of the microphone. <laughs> no. So, um, but but no, it's, it's a great story there. But before I ask you to share some of your stories, can you tell me maybe who's one of the best storytellers you've come across in your time? Uh, two funny guys that I really really enjoy the company. One is Terry Terry Mondo that carries for. Ian Poulter, he's a different character, but a really funny guy. He carried for Jeff Ogilvy when he won the US Open uh, um, 10 or 12 years ago, or whatever it is. So they're the two go-to really funny guys. I appreciate their stories. And so, so Terry, Terry caddies for, for Poulter. Um, I'm sure there's no shortage of Poulter stories out there. Is he just easily one of the most misunderstood players? Yeah, I mean, Poulter's... Uh, <laughs> I mean, he's... Uh, He's Jekyll and Hyde, and he's uh, yeah. you'd either love him or hate him, Polter, you know. Uh, but to me, he's you know he's real. He's a really good guy. He's a funny guy, uh, and he puts it out there as a competitor, and he gets his game face on on the golf course and rattles a few people's feathers. But uh, off the golf course, he's he's a funny guy. He's he's a nice guy. I, I really like Polter. Yeah. Um, you started your career. Uh, I know most people will probably know that you started really. Um, I guess getting notoriety as a world-class caddy from your five years working with Seve, but you know, that probably led to your career blossoming with, with players like, you know, Westwood and Clark, but it sounds to me, or at least from what I can tell, that doesn't happen without you connecting with Gordon Brand Jr. So can you, you know, that's true. Yeah. I think most people may not, my listeners may not know much about him, but this guy was a serious player, played Walker Cup, you know, rookie of the year in the European Tour, played two Ryder Cups. You're on the back for two Ryder Cups starting in 87. What can, you know, tell me a little bit about Gordon Brand Jr. Yeah, Gordon was, uh, he's one of the best shot makers I've come across in my, I've caddy for 38 years now, and Gordon was a very underestimated player. He was an unbelievable shot maker. Um, I know uh, Randall Chamblay wrote, wrote a piece in a magazine somewhere saying he'd come to Europe and he'd come across this guy he'd never heard of and he, and he stood back in awe of this man and it was Gordon Brand Jr. And I was very fortunate to do uh, my first two Ryder Cups with Gordon and uh, the first one at Muirfield Village in 1987, was, which was the first time that Europe had won in America. So oh, yeah. it was good times with Gordon. Uh, unfortunately, Gordon passed away last year, 60 years of old, which, um, you know, and he was pretty fit and healthy. So it was a big shock at the time. So... But I had five great years with Gordon and learned a lot about the game with him, you know, so some special times with him. When you were when you got to the Ryder Cup in 87 at Muirfield, obviously this is a, a new experience for you, and it's also a new experience for several of the players because I know that they were kind of on the young side. I think it's it's that's the, the big five. That's kind of when they really started kind of coming onto the scene, um, you know, Faldo, Woozy, and Lyle, and, and, and the rest. Um, how much of a different environment was that for you as a caddy? And what did you notice out of the players where, you know, this isn't just a regular tour events, not even a major, this is something completely different. And we're trying to figure it out today. We're trying to figure it out together. Yeah. So obviously a few of the players have been there before, you know, I mean, the Ryder Cup was a non-event, you know, when it was uh, the States versus Great Britain and Ireland, right. it was, you know, it was just a, you know, it's whipping boys. It was a, no competition at all, you know. So it was made, uh, Jack Nicholas's idea to make it Europe against America, which 
made it a bit more even, I guess. And uh, since 1979, I believe, uh, you know, it's really flourished. And, um, you know, a few of the boys had had that experience before at the Belfry in 85. Uh, it was certainly my first experience and probably half of the team going there to America. It's my first time in America. Uh, and when I got to Muirfield Village, I, I walked into the property and looked around. I thought, what are all these little greens? You know, the greens were just small and immaculate. And then I realized it was the teeing ground. <laughs> I'd never seen tea so pristine. It was like, you know, back in England or where I was, it was like the teas were better than the greens. You know, it was like, wow, how good is this place? You know, right. and, but obviously the atmosphere of a Ryder Cup is... It's incredible, you know, I mean, you're playing your local, you know, if you're playing a European tour event, it's compared to the Ryder Cup, it's like playing your local monthly medal, you know, around on a Saturday afternoon with your boys at your local country club, you know, in comparison to Ryder Cups, it was a massive shock of atmosphere and pressure for sure, yeah, it was, uh, you know, I've been very fortunate to be at 14 Ryder Cups now and uh, it never gets old, you know, it just gets better and better and better and Paris was just incredible, you know. I mean, it's probably the just the one grandstand behind the first tee held eight thousand people. So there was probably maybe fifteen to twenty thousand people around that first tee, and the noise levels were incredible. So yeah, it's it's a special, special tournament. When you were at uh, Kiowa in '91, that you know, famously the war on the shore, and and really, that's I guess when. The, it became very much of an intense situation, maybe elevated more than it probably should have been. But what was your takeaway on just kind of the, the atmosphere of the galleries in 91? Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'd have to, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say I came away disappointed. But, you right. know, that's that's part and parcel. You know, if you're if you're on the way team, you've got to man up and get on with it. You know, it's crowds cheering against you. You've got to accept that, you know. And, you know, if you're playing in front of the partisan crowd, you've got to expect that they want the home team to win. And, and But he got a little bit um, overboard in a few comments. and you know, He got a bit nasty, but listen, those days have gone, uh, in my in my opinion. You know, it's... Um, you know, go back in them days with Seve. You know, Seve was a, a, an ultimate warrior on the golf course and then he didn't mind getting into a scrape or a fight on a golf course. You know, he was <laughs> in the first, but... You know, he found it difficult when he first went over to the States and felt as though he wasn't accepted or, you know, appreciated. And, you know, he got, got his back up a bit, I guess. But um, those days have long gone. It, it was very much, you know, the 80s and that was more them against us type of situation that, you know, it was the European tour against America. And it was like, it was like a boxing match, you know. <laughs> you know, it, it was great, don't get me wrong, but there was that little bit of, needle in there and nastiness sure. at times but you know now it's a completely different fixture you know all, all the the best european players pretty much play in the states all year round they're great friends with with the american lads and you know that bitterness seems to have disappeared over the last i would say 20 years or so i would imagine you know and now it's yeah. a case of the visit each other's uh, team rooms afterwards and share a beer and you know it, it's great fun obviously when you're on once you're on the golf course it is you're trying your best and it's competition at its fiercest. But uh, I think they learn to appreciate and respect each other more than they used to do 20, 30 years ago, I guess. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about Seve and then also perhaps just any, you know, any other player that you, you've caddied for, whether it's, you know, Bjorn or, or Garcia. But when you're when you're working with a player and you realize and they realize that 
they're off their game. They're they're not on form. They don't have all the shots that they typically have when they're at their best. Is that something that you're trying to figure out and see yourself, or is that something that you and the player are discussing on the range by you know saying, "Hey, I just I just don't have that cut shot right now. I I don't have that in my arsenal. We we need to." You know, when we're out there, don't ask, don't tell me it's a soft cut because I just don't, I can't see that right now. Is, are there different ways that you're communicating with players? To no, I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to be told. It's uh, listen when you spend okay when you spend 22 weeks a year at home with your wife, when you spend 30 weeks a year on the road, 10 hours a day with your boss on a golf course, you know your boss better than you do your wife. Okay, you know exactly, you know exactly what's going on in his head. You know how he's playing. You know his game like the back of your hand and I, I've got myself in a couple of situations in Ryder Cups one one at uh, the K Club in 2006 and one at Hazeltine in 2016 where I went to the captain or the vice captain to tell the captain that you know Darren Clark's playing like me and I'm shite <laughs> obviously I realised that Darren was really struggling with his game so I went to Peter Baker, who was Wuzzy's assistant captain, and said, Peter, you need to get Darren out of here because he's playing terrible. Lee Westwood's playing like God. There were two up on Tiger Woods and Jim Furyk after nine holes. I said, you've got to let Wuzzy know because he's picking the team for the afternoon matches to get Darren Clark out of here. He, you just knew as a caddy he wasn't at the races. So that message went back. And then Wuzzy had obviously had chose his team for the afternoon and Darren Clark wasn't playing. Right. And then this is great Ryder Cup captaincy for you and team bonding and spirit because Darren Clark came out of the players' lounge and started hitting balls on the range in the afternoon while the afternoon matches were being played. And he turned to me and said, did you say something to was it? I'm like, what? No, no. Well, I didn't. I said it to Peter Baker. He says, well, that's <laughs> funny because was he saying, Darren, I'm really sorry you're not playing this afternoon, but Billy says you're playing absolute shite. <laughs> I mean, threw me under the bus like you can't believe. And Darren didn't speak to me for 24 hours. And I had to go into the locker room. Then Sunday morning of the singles and say, Darren, I'm sorry what happened yesterday, but what I did was the benefit of yourself and the benefit of the team. If you want to sack me, sack me. But let's get out there today, win your match against Zach Johnson, win the Ryder Cup and win it for your Heather, you, you know, your, your past wife. And right. let's do those things. And, and four hours later, all those things happened. And, and he loved me again, but it was the worst 28 hours of my Acadian career right there. And that's just by being honest. Yeah. And I did the same at Hazeltine, you know, I said to Thomas Bjorn, look, you know, Lee's struggling with his game and need to get him out of here. So, uh, and, and sure enough, West Team was dropped. But, I mean, you have to... I always say to the caddies in the team room, look, if if the captain's going to go to his players and say, how's the player playing? The players are obviously going to say they're playing well because they want to play. But sure. I said, you have to ask the caddies. The caddies will give you their honest opinion to tell you, tell you the goddamn honest truth. You know, because you cannot... And I said to all the caddies, you have to, for the benefit of the team, you have to be honest with each and every one of us. So we tell the captain exactly how your boss is playing so he can choose his form players and you can't be hiding and try to protect your own values and try to try to be out there yourself if you know your boss is playing poorly. So that's the theory I've always gone with and it seems to have worked, but it's also got me in trouble as well. But hey, <laughs> uh, Billy, should, uh, should a caddy be an assistant captain on a Ryder Cup team? Um... <laughs> 
I won't say how they should be, no, but... No, I'm, just, I'm being honest. Listen, I, I, yeah, I'm just... listen, there's a lot of things happened. I mean, even in Paris, you know, I don't really want to go into what happened in Paris, but um, I noticed one thing and I mentioned it with Ken that carries for Graham McDowell and I mentioned it to Lee Westwood and it went back to the captain and something was changed and it worked out really well. But I don't really want to go into that, but yeah, caddies, okay. can, in, caddies can influence decisions that are being made on a golf course. You uh you caddied for Darren um, at Valderrama in '97, where Seve was <laughs> Seve was the captain, and there's this great picture of uh, of Seve talking to you at the Ryder Cup, and you're wearing a caddy bib that says Clark, and you got the you got the captain right behind you, and if anyone's not really paying attention to the caddy bib, you'll think that that Seve's playing. Um, I mean, Sevy Sevy was playing. I know. You know? He, I know. He had every shot for everybody all week. I know. That's where that's he, he was of, a nuisance. I, that's well, shit. I can't even get my question out, Billy. I mean, that, but that's basically what I'm saying. Like, how did you just have to tell him just get the hell out of there and go read a just book? Just get or out of the way, man. Okay. Hey, listen, I mean, I was getting for Dad and Clark playing with Colin Montgomery in the middle of the 18th fairway playing Fred Couples and Davis Love. And I've give Clark of the yardage, whatever it was, 188 yards. It's a six iron. Okay. Seve comes across. Billy, Billy, how far you are? Eh? I said, uh, you know, Billy, it's a seven iron. Eh? I said, Seve, I've carried for Darren Clark now for two years. I know it's a six iron. Just go away and leave us alone. It's okay. You know, and, and Darren hit the six iron to about 10 feet or whatever it was. One match, but Seve was, he was getting in the way and upsetting certain players because he wanted to hit the shots for them, you know. But that's just his nature of, trying to be that involved. But a, a really funny story that I've never told this before, but <laughs> it was Lee Westwood's uh, debut in a Ryder Cup. Okay. So Seve's got all the experience, all the the accolades of a, one of the best Ryder Cup players of all time. So he comes up to Lee Westwood, who's now walking to the first tee to hit his opening tee shot ever in a Ryder Cup playing with Nick Faldo. And Seve comes up to him, Lee, I have something very important for you, eh? So Lee's now thinking he's going to get these words of wisdom from one of the best Ryder Cup players of all time, you know, as he's walking to the first tee, some inspirational advice. And Seve opens his hand. Well, I don't know what they call it in America. It's a, a ball of cotton wool. <laughs> and he's like, what's that? No, no, you you, you rip the cotton wool and, and put it in your ears. So when you go to the first tee, you cannot hear the noise of the crowd. Nice. And Lee's, Lee's like, what? <laughs> well, I'm on. The, I'm actually now on the floor crying, laughing at the advice that Seve's given. And we're running around the putting ring with about two feet of cotton wool hanging about out of his ears, running around laughing. I mean, he didn't find it impressive, but <laughs> but yeah, that was his advice to Westy going to the first two. It was incredible. Oh, that's that's such a great story. This is so. This is '97 in Valderrama. Yeah, incredible. Tell me about your first time at uh, Augusta National. I know that I know that your I know that your two favorites are the Open and the Ryder Cup, but it's such an iconic place. We just missed it, obviously, and, and it's, hopefully it's going to be in November. You'll be on the bag with uh, Matthew Fitzpatrick. But but tell me uh, tell me about your first time setting foot in Augusta National. Yeah, well, uh, obviously when you walk up Magnolia Drive, you go around the front of the clubhouse and you're looking over the, the plantation, all of the golf course, you know, I always thought, you know, it'll bring a tear to a glass eye. It was that, you know, emotional to, to be at Augusta for the first time. And I'll never forget, it was now the Saturday before the week of the Masters. 
So it was very quiet, just a few members around, and Seve went to play a practice round on his own, nobody else. My first ever day at Augusta National, he played a practice round seven hours. Seven hours. I mean, seven hours, he hit like 50 chips, 100 putts, oh, every God. hole, showed me every blade of grass he's ever did a shot on the previous 10 Masters. So I've come off on the Saturday thinking, I know Augusta National like the back of my hand, you know, so he plays Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, five practice rounds. So anyway, the first round of the Masters starts and the most amazing thing happened on the ninth hole of the Masters. Seve hit the fairway. So I walked down there. <laughs> Millie, how far we have, eh? I said, you got 144 yards, mate. Okay, give me the pitching wedge. I'm like, no, no, Seve. I said, it's 144 yards, but it's six yards uphill and it's into the wind. It's playing 155. It's a 9-9. Ah, yes, Billy, you're a very good caddy. You're the best caddy I ever have. Give me the 9-9. Eh? So he believes me. Takes the 9-9. But the pin's right on the front left of the green. Uh -huh. And as you know, uh -huh. three-tiered three marble staircase. <laughs> it's a ball. It's all over the flagstick going up there. I'm silence. Not one clap. Billy, you see the ball, eh? And off he goes, running up the hill to see where the ball is. I'm thinking, that ball's landed on the downslope of that bunker and it shot up the back of the green and it's going to be on the back edge with an 80-foot put down, a three-tiered marble staircase with 20-foot break on it. I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to go mental. Right. He gets, gets to the top of the hill. His eyes get level with the green. He can see the ball. It's off the back edge. Now he stops at the top of the hill. There's thousands of people 10 deep round this green. He holds his arms out, looking down at the me in the bottom of the hill, and he's screaming at me, Billy, Billy, you son of my bitch, Billy, you son of my bitch. I'm like, oh, no. I want me, mum. I've got to walk up the hill, getting the abuse off all the gallery, like, you know. Gets to the green. He just wants to rip me head off. Anyway, he looks at this putt, and he puts it sideways, and it stops in the fringe oh, no. of the grass. I better start running now. But just before I started running, I saw the dimples on the ball moving so slowly. Uh -huh. I could read the name on the ball. T-I-T. -I, -T. I thought, I know that already. Tit. Anyway, it catches on the green, runs down these three tiers and down 20-foot will break on it, and it finishes four inches from the hole. I'm like, oh, get out of jail free. It, now he comes back. He's got the, the scowl, the horrible face has now disappeared. He's got the most handsome, smiley face on him. And he's pointing at me and he's got his arm around me. Billy, Billy, it's not your fault, eh? No, no, Billy, I'm telling you, eh? It's not your fault. It's mine for listening to you. <laughs> so, I mean, I got all right, bollocking. 63 holes to go and I'm like, my God, survival. Get me out of here. But, yeah, it's, it's such a tough golf course. Um, mentally wise, it, it absolutely drains you. And physically, it's... Uh, Every year it just gets hillier, I think, or is it just me that's getting older? <laughs> but, yeah, it's a tough walk. It's a tough walk down there. But it's a great week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, do you find that maybe the younger players that are coming onto, onto the tour are depending on caddies more than they used to? I know that you've <clears throat> said previously that you did everything for, for Darren Clark. You just, you know, club and yardage and, and style of play. I had to do everything. But, yeah, I had to do everything but hit the shot for Darren Clark. But, um they're all different. All players are different. They're all psychopaths. It's just a scale of one to ten how crazy they are, you know. <laughs> okay. Some of them are some of them one or two, some of them are ten, you know. 
What? Um, yeah, they're all well. They're all a little bit nuts, and I just I'm just curious how even also with um, how much they're depending on you. Do you feel that maybe today's players are they as good as perhaps the you know the players in the 80s and 70s because of the equipment? Because the ball goes further, it doesn't spin as much. So are the players perhaps as well suited to hitting all the shots that perhaps I mean I don't want to compare today's players to Seve, but you kind of understand what I'm saying. Do they have as many shots as they used as they did back in the 80s and 90s? Yeah, listen, it's one of my biggest biggest gripes that really upsets me that uh, the art shop making's finished. It finished years ago. I'm not saying these fellas these fellas are athletes and right. the swing speeds has gone through the roof. They're knocking it 320, 350 yards as opposed to 270 yards back in the day. Uh, you know, and you could really shape shots, move it 10, 15 yards in the air easily, you know, when the wind moved it around a lot more. So what it has done is brought the fantastic players and the and the decent players so much closer together. You know, the fantastic players were head and shoulders in front of the rest 25, 30 years ago, but technology don't allow that anymore. But, um, yeah, it's a shame. And, you know, I'd like to see the ball slowed down a little bit or, or bring a ball back that moves a little bit more, you know, to, right. to, make, it, to make it more interesting. And to your point, it sounds to me that what you're saying is it's not that they can't, hit these shots it's that the equipment doesn't necessitate it they just need to bomb it no they, yeah they just don't the ball it. doesn't the ball doesn't move now listen when i'm caddying now and i've done it for probably six seven eight years now i don't say half as much as what i used to say 15 years ago because okay. i feel as though it just either confuses the situation or it's just speaking for speaking sake it doesn't need to be said in other words if a pin's three or four yards from the back left of the green and there's bunkers left or whatever. I know the wind's down out of the left or whatever. I won't even mention it. We'll, I'll, I'll figure it into what club we, we're going to hit, but I will never say the wind's out of the left a bit because I know that player's going to hit the ball, left edge of the green, and the next thing he's going to say is, hit it, wind, wow, because that wind not touched that ball and next minute you short-sided yourself making double bogey. So why mention it? You know, The ball doesn't move anymore or compared to what it used to do it hardly moves at all so that says it all to me it's uh, the artist painted a picture a lot better than they used to do you know uh, they used to do yeah from what they do now you know it's uh, it's a shame and you know i'd like to see it'd be a great challenge for these modern players to to be able to to have to hit certain shots and and they could of course they could the brilliant players but it's all about generations and your hands are tied with the equipment that you're using, but it's, it used to be a far more entertaining game than it is now, in my opinion. Of course, yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, you know, whether it's young players or even amateurs, you know, you're on the bag for pro-ams all the time, whether it's a, you know all over the world, whether it's on the PGA Tour or in Europe. Um, you know, Brooks Kepka just did an interesting uh, Instagram Live session with his coach, Claude Harmon III, and uh, they they got into talking a little bit about how many pins he fires at, whether it's a regular tour event or, or a major. And he said not many. He doesn't fire at a lot of pins. He's just kind of put it in the middle of the green and and basically prevent mistakes. And I, I'm guessing that's something that amateurs can bring into their game to, as you said, less you know short side themselves less and keep the ball in play more. Um, maybe what are some of the things that you've brought to your players? when you first start the relationship that you've identified that, okay, we need to 
we need to to change our approach a little bit here to minimize the mistakes. Yeah, I mean, listen. You, before you go any further, you, you, you've just said it. What Brooks Kopke said. I mean, in my opinion, you look at the greatest player of all time. Sorry, Mister Nicholas, but you know, in my opinion, from what I've seen, Tiger Woods is the best player that's ever lived. If he won for his injuries, you know, he, he'd have probably had twenty-five majors playing sure. left-handed the last ten years. You know, that's how good he was. And what does Tiger do? Never makes mistakes. Just keeps it in the. Keeps putting in the right spot on the greens and takes the odd chance now and again when he gets his opportunity. But and I always remember Tom Watson that rings in me head, you win golf tournaments by limiting your mistakes, not by hitting glory shots. Make less mistakes than anybody else you win golf tournaments. And that's the same in the amateur game. Two things I see in pro-ams, they always aim 30 yards right with the setup, so their alignment's shocking and they never hit enough club. That's the two things. But but sure, you've got to you've got to listen to your your own head, uh, the mind game's a big thing. And, you know, know your limitations of what your game is. So if you've got 230 yards to carry the water and you've, you're you going to pull it off one in 10, why go for it? Just a, an eight iron down the fairway, wedge it on the green and make it part or give yourself a chance of a birdie. But no, guess what? I'm going to flail one in the water and make nine and just shoot stupid mistakes, you know, just be disciplined and, you know, just hit shots you know you can play and don't take on stupid shots like try to hit four rounds out of six inches of rough, you know, hit a wedge down the fairway. Just limit your mistakes and be sensible and you'll always serve yourself two or three shots around. That's great advice for anyone to put into their game. You're uh, you're caddying. I'll get you out of here on this one. You're caddying for for Matthew Fitzpatrick now. You had a long run with Westwood. You're, you're over to, to Fitzpatrick. Actually, Actually, I spoke with his younger brother, Alex, who uh, played Walker Cup. He's at Wake Forest. and But you're, you're with Fitzpatrick. I know one thing that you really want before your career ends is to, uh, is to get a Claire Jug with a player. Um, tell, me, tell me something about Fitzpatrick that you think uh, is going to lead, lead you guys to, uh, to the Claire Jug, to winning an Open Championship. <laughs> I don't know if I'll be still around by the time he maybe wins one, but... Uh... Well... <laughs> He's gonna have to. He's gonna have to do it quick. Just take me half an hour to get to telephone in here. The one thing about uh, Matthew, uh, listen, I've been very fortunate to work for some unbelievable players, and um, there's one thing about Matthew. You know, is his ball striking as good as a Lee Westwood or a, a Tiger Woods? Probably not, but he drives the ball great. His iron play is very, very good. Um, his short game is pretty good. He's a great putter under pressure. His mindset is very good, but the one thing I always that makes him stand out for me is his work ethic. Is like he's, he's like Bernard Langer's love child. That's what I call him. <laughs> oh my you know, gosh! I don't know what I don't I don't know what Bernard were doing twenty five years ago, but it could be a clone of Bernard Langer. His um, his work ethic is exceptional, and the effort that he puts in behind the scenes is uh, incredible. So you know that's that's the one thing that will push him forward, you know. Um, whether he manages to, you know, win a claret jug or a green jacket is, you know, down to the gods, the golfing gods, I guess. But uh, it won't be for the lack of trying, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, Billy, you you tell stories all the time, and I've I've heard the, the Tiger Woods story uh, of of the um, of, of the, uh, the, the, the the Tom Kite story, and, and you've told several and I don't want to ask you to retell a story that you don't want to retell, but is there, I guess, is there a story that you like telling all the time? Like, like, where it just doesn't get old? 
How long's the show? <laughs> I mean, well, well, the reason I'm asking you, Billy, is because I don't want to. I don't want to have you just listen. I, one of one of my favorite stories. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I don't want to ask. I don't want to like just put a you know put a coin in the slot and say. All no, right, no. Go. I, listen, I'll, I'll tell you two or three funny stories. I mean, one of them, which I think is brilliant. Okay. Uh, it, Seve Ballesteros, and he's playing with Tony Johnson from Zimbabwe. Okay. It's at like the 1978 Dutch Open and. The sixth hole at Kemner Golf Club is a blind tee shot over the top of the hill. So Seve was a, a big hitter and Tony was just a steady plodder down the middle, you know, and the walk over the top of the hill and the second shot is in a really acute dog leg with a tree on the corner. Well, one ball's right on the corner behind the tree and the other one's 25 yards further straight in the middle of the fairway. So Tony Johnson stops at the first ball so he walks past to the long ball, you know, as per usual. And Tony's looking at the shot thinking, I can't go under the tree because the rough's too long. I'm too close to the tree. I can't get over it. So I'm going to have to chip out short left of the green and try and up and down it. But then he notices a sprinkler head like four feet away. So he nearly does the splits. He's really stretching. They get his left toe on this sprinkler. Uh-huh. And he, shout, he shouts at Seve. He says, Oi, Seve. He says, you see this sprinkler that I'm stood on? Is there any chance I can get relief? Well, Seve was re- renowned for pushing the, the boundaries with the referees and asking for drops and stuff. So Seve comes across and goes, no, no, Tony, no, Tony, my friend, you know. So Tony's thinking if he gets a free drop, he'll get a club-length relief and he can just skirt around the tree, you see. Sure. So Seve comes across and says, Tony, Tony, I'm really sorry, my friend, you know, I cannot give you a drop, you know, because, uh, you know, my friend, that's not your natural stance, eh? He said, good, Seve, that's your ball. Mine's over there. <laughs> <laughs> so Seve wasn't impressed about that one, but, you that's, know, that's it was a good one. But uh, another one of my favourites is uh, a Squiddle. He was caddying for Jeff Ogilvy at uh, Riviera. And the 10th hole at Riviera, is a, we all know the 10th hole at Riviera, short par four, you can drive it, you know. Yeah. Jeff Ogilvy, the first two days, has done the right thing. He's hit a four iron down the left and a little wedge up the green, little sand wedge up the green. He's played it a par and a birdie the first two rounds. And it gets there on the Saturday and Jeff Ogilvy says to Squiddle, he's caddy, what do you think today, Squiddle? And Squiddle says, I think it's a driver. He says, well, what do you think it's a driver for? It's downwind, you can drive the green today. So Jeff Olgavy believes him, pulls the driver out, slashes it 50 yards to the right, duffs it in the bunker, thins the bunker shot over the green, chips on the green, two puts, double bogey six. So now he's throwing every F-bomb, C-bomb, every hurling abuse at Squiddle all the way to the 11th tee. So they get to the 11th tee and Olgavy's just about to tee off and a phone starts ringing. So Jeff Ogilvy has gone absolutely mental, shouting and bawling, whose effing phone's that? Turn that effing phone off. Turns out the phone's ringing inside Jeff Ogilvy's golf bag, (laughs) and it's Squiddle's phone. So obviously the caddy goes in the bag, and you know normally you just turn it off. Squiddle grabs the phone, picks it up and goes, hello? (laughs) Yes, yeah, yeah, I can't really speak right. Yes, I know. I can't really speak right now because we're in the middle of the golf tournament. All right. Speak to you after the round. Bye. I love you. Bye. Puts the phone back in the bag, zips up the pocket, and he looks across, and Jeff Ogilvy's now frothing at the mouth. Who the effing hell was that? 
Squirrel goes, it was my mum. And what's your mum doing phoning while we're in the middle of the effing golf course? He says she's just wondering why you ain't driver at the last. <laughs> oh, man, that's a great one. Yeah, I love the old squirrel story. Yeah. But um, i got to think of another one for you. Um, here's a true story for you. Okay. This is a true story. All Polter fans out there. So oh, I, I love me. So that, that is what, before you tell this story, that is one guy that I would be fascinated just to talk to. And not and not in a, like, media, I'm trying to poke you and, and get some dirt, but just it, it's a fascinating career that he's had where it is the, the highest of highs, lowest of lows. Then he comes back. He has this Jekyll and Hyde persona. I just think it's fascinating. I mean, he's... I, I don't know. Go ahead. I just I just think his well, entire it, career is fascinating. Well, Darren Clark used to laugh at him, you know, thinking, "How did he ever get in this Ryder Cup team?" Right. You know, he didn't think he, he didn't think he were good enough. But I'm telling you now, I've been like I said, I've been very fortunate to do 14 Ryder Cups, and if I had to do my all-time European team, I'd have Seve Ballesteros in number one, and I'd have Poulter at number two. Yeah. I think he's actually won every singles match he's played in. Everyone. I, I, I might stand corrected, but I think he's won everyone. That's that, that match, um, the when he paired with Rory at 2012 at Madrid. Yeah, it was incredible. That is but, that I, I could watch that replay. I could watch that every weekend. That is the most. To be right fair, they should have just forgot the European team and just presented Polter with that Ryder Cup because what he did on the Saturday night. If he hadn't done that on Saturday night, it'd have been an absolute battering. America had won that by six or seven points, but it just put, planted that seed of doubt. And, you know, he, he, he was solely responsible for that Ryder Cup victory, that is for sure. His mindset's completely different, and I, I'm going to tell you this story that explains his mindset. Okay. You know, and if lads are thinking about self-belief and self-confidence and how to talk yourself up to achieving things, this is why Polter does what he does. And this genuinely happened at the 2008 Open Championship at Birkdale. So Polter's now on the last green. It's blowing 50 miles an hour, 5-0. It is absolutely a hurricane. And he's tied for the lead, stood on the last green. Padre Garrington, who he's tied for the lead with, is on about the 12th tee. He's got like seven holes to play, but it's gale force wins. So Polter's now got a 15-foot putt on the, par, on the last for a par. So he's thinking, this is his big moment, like. So he's looking at this putt, and he's, the peacock's feathers come out, and he's strutting around like Lady Gaga around the 18th green, milking the, milking the situation, you know. And then he's got Terry, his caddy, at the back of the green, who has not read one putt in 71 holes of the championship. So Pulse is just about to walk into it, this putt, which he feels this is it. And he stops, and he turns to Terry at the back of the green. True story, by the way. He says, Oi, tell, come here. And Terry's smoking a cigarette with the other, other caddies. You what? He hadn't asked me to read one putt all week. I'm coming, Pulse. Walks across. Now, Polter's just walking into this putt as Terry is now walking in on his blind side. Polter holds his hands up. Stop there, tell. Terry's taking the cigarette out of his mouth. What is it, Pulse? Bearing in mind, he thinks this is for the Open Championship. And he stopped him. He says, it says, you know, Tell, when you're like 12 or 13 years old and you stood outside the front of the clubhouse at your golf club on the putting green 
your little shorts on and you're saying to yourself as a little boy, this is for the Open, this is for the Open. And you're hitting putts, hitting putts. Terry's gone, yeah, putts, we've all done that. He says, yeah, but this is for the Open now, piss off. And he rolled it straight in. I mean, he's not well. <laughs> he's not a well man, but that genuinely, that happened. How you can go through all that and then roll the putt in. And he thought he'd won the Open when he rolled it. But then Harrington Eagle the seventeenth to Pippin, but that's that explains the self belief that Bolter has. Well, yeah, I think uh, I think he he's going to be an incredible captain. He's he's going to be incredible. Uh, I mean, he'll probably be. Well, I don't know. I mean, who when you you know who's going to be coming down the line of who's going to be a captain on that team at some point over the next Ben. Time. Yeah. Before we go any further, yeah, you're only as good as your players, mate. So forget the captain. The captain, the captain helps. The captain has to make decisions. But if your players don't play, great captains lose. Yeah. Average captains win. Simple as. There's some big decisions to be made out there. Don't get me wrong. And you hope you get them right. But at the end of the day, if your players don't perform, you ain't winning. Oh, but no. he will be a good captain. I appreciate you coming in. I, I really do appreciate all you're doing for your charitable causes and raising a lot of money for people. I think it's fantastic. And it uh, looks like the PGA Tour is going to start around June. So hopefully we'll see you here in this. I know, I know. We're being, I'm being optimistic, man. I'm, I'm being optimistic. Uh, you can't beat optimism, man. Well, I don't know anybody's going get to get from overseas. But, you know, since we're not allowed on airplanes and not allowed into America, so that rules us lot out. But good luck with um, it starting in June. But we'll see. Hopefully it will. We'll yep. see. Well, I wish you the best. Uh, thank you so much for stopping by the back of the range, and hopefully we can do it again soon. That's all right, Ben. Take care. Everybody stay safe out there. And there you have it. Special thanks to Billy Foster for joining me on this episode here at the back of the range. Don't forget, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you're looking for access to every single episode, go to thebackoftherange.com. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And we'll see you again next week for another episode here at the Back of the Range.